I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Book Chat, the monthly podcast hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer. I bring one book. He brings one book and we chat. Our only rule, the books have to be more than two years old. In this case, they are a cumulative 270 years old, I think. Something like that, yeah. And uh, as we're still in the depths of winter, today we're going to be discussing two suitably weighty classics, best enjoyed in front of a roaring fire with a moody scowl on your face. That's exactly where I read them, in fact. Thanks so much to everyone who's been in touch since our last episode. Uh, Amina said that our discussion of white teeth reminded her of a couple of other intricate multi-generational family novels, namely The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo and Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Jen emailed to say that after hearing us talk about it, she decided to tackle Earthlings by Sayaka Murata. Here's her two cents. Respect to the author for providing the only ending to a book I've read to date which made me want to simultaneously scream, laugh hysterically, and throw up. That sounds about right. Bobby, what are you reading right now? I'm currently reading You Be Mother by Meg Mason. Sorrow and Bliss was my favourite book of last year, so this was a no-brainer for me. It's her first book, and I definitely think it feels a little bit less refined, but God, she is so funny. I can't wait for whatever she writes next as well. So what about you? I also read that recently. Um, it's only just been published over here, I think, even though, as you said, it was her first book. I found it really moving, although I hated most of the characters, maybe because the thought of being a young single mother on my own with no money in a foreign country is so terrifying to me and none of them are very nice to her. But there are some really brilliant bits in it. Yeah, some of the scenes with her mother-in-law in particular are absolutely excruciating. Uh, but that's what I think that's what makes it so good. What about you? What are you, uh, what are you reading? I read... Lots of books over Christmas, actually, but the one I wanted to flag was Man's Search for Meaning by the psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, which was written in the 1950s and has sold something insane, like 15 million copies worldwide. And I've been meaning to read it for ages. So I plucked it off my bookshelf and I took it on holiday. It's all about his time in Auschwitz and how believing your life is still meaningful was the biggest tool for survival. That's a very kind of crude summary of it, but it's a really powerful, but easy to read, resonant book. Now, I'm not sure what the moratorium is on spoiling something, seeing as one of these books came out almost 200 years ago, but still be warned, this is a meaty book chat and there will be spoilers. Hold on, we absolutely cannot introduce this book without...
the song that should have been number one last year instead of Running Up That Hill. Agree. So, Wuthering Heights, I first read this book as a teenager. And what you need to know about me as a teenager is I was a massive emo. So you have to imagine me uh, (laughs) reading this in a pair of fingerless gloves, sweeping my straightened fringe out of my eye, existing on a musical diet of Panic at the Disco and My Chemical Romance, picking up Wuthering Heights for the first time. It blew my tiny little mind. Fingerless gloves and the straightened fringe um, kill me. I also read it as a teenager, but not voluntarily. To be honest, I studied it for A level as part of the Gothic tradition, so I read that and Dracula and Frankenstein and The Women in Black. And rereading it took me back in a way that was really jarring. There were certain passages, and I would just be exactly back to where I first read them at school. So it was a very odd experience that I haven't had reading a book for a really long time. But and I can hardly believe I'm saying this, as I know I groaned both on and off air when you chose it. I liked it so much more this time around. In fact, I go so far to say I was completely engrossed and I kept trying to talk to my entirely disinterested husband about it. Yes, Pandora. I am so glad because I think a lot of people have that reaction because a lot of people are forced to read this book as teenagers. It's a totally unfairly maligned book, I reckon. It's really true and it makes me sad actually how many books I didn't enjoy purely by dint of studying them. Anyway, give us a pricey of the book for anyone who, lol, doesn't know what Wuthering Heights is about. (laughs) So Wuthering Heights is this sort of under the radar book. Uh, It was written by (laughs) Emily Bronte. It's set in and around an old house called Wuthering Heights on the Yorkshire Moors where, where Bronte grew up. It all begins when the house's owner, Mr Earnshaw, decides to walk to Liverpool one day and he comes back with an almost mute orphaned boy called Heathcliff. The story follows the relationship between Heathcliff, Mr Earnshaw's daughter Catherine and this eventual love triangle between Heathcliff, Catherine and her future husband Edgar Linton who is the soft refined heir to Thrushcross Grange which is a grand house nearby and also something you don't want to have to say after a couple of drinks. I was just (laughs) thinking that when you said it. I thought, my God, that's hard to say. Thrush Cross Grange. (laughs) So Wuthering Heights is, it's described as a love story between Cathy and Heathcliff, but it's kind of, it's kind of a love story. It's kind of also just like a, a hate story. It's this wild, destructive kind of love that leaves everyone around them destroyed or dead or, you know, just sort of like ruined for generations to come. That combined with this bleak, windswept setting where the moors and the crags and the driving rain are, are sort of characters too, with this brooding, wailing ghosts. It's, you know, it's about as melodramatic as it gets, basically. So Wuthering Heights came out in 1847, which is the same year as Jane Eyre, which just so happens to be by Emily's sister, Charlotte. But while Jane Eyre was an immediate success, Wuthering Heights was not. Uh, as Atlas in 1848 wrote... Wuthering Heights casts a gloom over the mind not easily to be dispelled. I mean, it is without doubt one of the gloomiest and most violent books I've ever read. What astounds me is how unrocked I was by that as a teenager, which just I think so is just how unengaged I was in the reading material and that I just didn't engage with the intergenerational trauma of it all. And the funny thing is, like, because I liked it so much as, a, as an emo teenager, I thought I might find it irritating or trashy as an adult. But every time I reread it, I, I just sort of get swept away again. It's very much a book of two halves. The first half is, is Heathcliff and Catherine's great love story. They keep getting pulled apart and thrown back together. 
mainly because Mr. Earnshaw's son, Hindley, who is is the worst character in a book of many bad characters, makes Heathcliff's life a living hell. Catherine marries Edgar Linton, becomes a lady. Heathcliff disappears for a while, uh, goes off somewhere, does some bad things, returns a gentleman by dubious means. Uh, And then he just sort of hangs around like a bad smell, flirting with Catherine, annoying Edgar. Then about halfway through, big spoiler, Catherine dies, leaving a child, Cathy, behind. And everything after that is just Heathcliff making everyone else miserable and ruining everyone's lives because he can't live without her. He does warn that he's going to do as much as well. Before Catherine dies, he says, The tyrant grinds down his slaves and they don't turn against him. They crush those beneath him. The book really could just be called Fuck You, Love, Heathcliff, A Guide to Destroying Everyone Around You. I think that's what it was originally called, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, for all of all of Heathcliff's awfulness, he is a fantastically written character. There's a reason that he endures so much. You know, everyone thinks of Heathcliff when they think of Wuthering Heights. The bit that sums up why I love this book so much is Heathcliff's reaction to Catherine's death. And I only realised when I was rereading it that, that it comes at the exact midpoint of the novel. Catherine dies. Uh, the narrator, who's, who's the housekeeper, Nellie Dean, uh, she goes outside to tell Heathcliff he's been lurking all night in the garden, as he tends to do. She says that Catherine died peacefully, that, she, that her life closed in a gentle dream. And Heathcliff says, may she wake in torment. And if you think that's intense, uh, just listen to how a young Tom Hardy in the 2009 BBC adaptation acted out that bit of stage direction. Interesting. I don't really like that bit. It's funny because I feel like you like the the more... Uh, the less melodramatic bits and I like all the really melodramatic bits. Uh, I don't know what that says about us as people. Heathcliff dies, really, when Catherine dies in spirit, if not body. Melvin Bragg observed in a 2017 episode of In Our Time that Emily Bronte attacks you with her prose. I think that's a very apt way of putting it. Do you agree? I think that's what this book's all about. It's, it's you know, passion and melodrama and the sort of self-indulgent angst you'd associate nowadays with you know, teen TV shows or erotic thrillers. It's actually no accident that the central love triangle was a huge inspiration for the Twilight books. I didn't know that. I think they're probably more palatable versions of... I mean, is anyone on Team Edgar or Team Heathcliff? I'm I'm not on either team. <laughs> I think I'd like to say I was Team Heathcliff, but everyone who knows me would, would say I'm, I'm quite an Edgar Linton. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's very humble of you. Sickly. <laughs> um... But yeah, I mean, it's so passionate, and even in the more out there elements, like the fact that Heathcliff uh, bribes a gravedigger to let him cuddle Catherine's corpse uh, and to knock out the side of each of their coffins so that they can dissolve together when he's dead. There's something morbidly sweet about it in that kind of goth romance, Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly way. Morbidly sweet or necrophilia? Answers on a postcard. It's really interesting to me, the bits you're flagging, because those aren't my favourite bits. I think... The thing I love the most about this book is actually how it's written. It's the clarity of the prose. And that sounds quite wanky, but it honestly reads like it could have been written yesterday. And that's such a delicious relief to me because the problem I have with old books, quote unquote, and well, this could be applied to our next book we're discussing, is how unuser friendly they can be as a reading experience. 
the sentences can be so long and complicated and abstract and winding. And I was shocked at how easy to read this is, but at the same time, how utterly beautiful so much of the writing is. It's got some really beautiful descriptions. It's got some of the most famous, beautiful descriptions of love in any book, uh, like the speech from Catherine about the difference between her love for Edgar and her love for Heathcliff. I would read it out, but I don't think I make a very convincing Catherine. So I'll let Charlotte Riley, who played Catherine against her real-life husband, Tom Hardy, in that BBC version, I'll let her do it for me. Nellie, my love for Edgar is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it, I'm well aware. My love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath. My great miseries in this world have been Heathcliff's miseries. If all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be. Nellie, I am Heathcliff. Not as a pleasure, but as my own being. think of our separation. I will never talk of our separation again. I couldn't agree more. That is my favourite passage. Catherine's a really interesting character as well. She's also not a great person. She's she's sort of very selfish and tempestuous she's constantly described as saucy which i found really really funny uh you have this scene with hareton later in the book where he he turns to the younger kathy actually and he says i'll see thee damned thou saucy witch i love saucy witch another one i really like and intend to employ is damnable jade (laughs) i'm guessing a jade is a woman there are so many wonderful bits of writing you can totally see why it's been described as a poetic masterpiece rather than a novelistic masterpiece. And interestingly, Virginia Woolf actually did a side-by-side comparison of Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights where she said almost exactly that. Which did she prefer? She, it's hard to tell. She basically says that Charlotte Bronte... I think, I mean, she she prefers Wuthering Heights. She, she thanks Emily Bronte in the endorsements for Orlando. So I think you can tell that Wuthering Heights must have had a fairly profound effect on her. Yeah, this book is, it's a real rogues gallery of awful characters. And I think, you know, that that's inescapable whenever you return to it. But every character, something I really like about it is that every character is, is twisted by their own environment. There's this really heartbreaking moment early on when Heathcliff as a child wants to dress up nice to impress Catherine. And he says to Nellie, make me decent, I'm going to be good but he's still mocked and he's bullied and he's mistaken for a servant. And it's all these little slights that that compound and turn him into this vengeful, awful abuser. And then, you know, but by the time he's he's older, he he, he calls his wife Isabella a, a wicked slut. He he drives several characters to their deaths. He's he's awful. He's so cruel, he's so violent, and he 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 almost veers into comic book villain territory at times. There was a bit where I couldn't quite believe it. He he sort of destroys all of the younger Kathy's books just out of spite one day. And Isabella is so scared of him that she runs away for 12 years. She doesn't even come back to see her brother. She doesn't even tell her son, Linton, that he has a father. And I love, and this is such a product of its time, I love instantly that we don't know that anyone's pregnant until 
they look a bit ill or pale or weirdly thin and then they give birth like the next day. But Isabella <laughs> literally flees him, fearing for her life. And that definitely stuck with me much more this time round reading it. I just kept thinking, why is Heathcliff considered this Byronic hero? He's physically and mentally abusive. He locks people up against their will. He's likely a rapist too. I mean, he reminds me of James Norton in Happy Valley. And I think if you fancy Heathcliff, you need to go talk to someone. I almost think that conception of Heathcliff is more like the attitudes of a hundred years ago. As a, it's like he was remembered in the in the twentieth century as like a brooding bad boy, and then when you read it nowadays, you're like, he's not a bad boy. He's a, he's a total bastard. A bit like Lord Byron, to be fair, who he's often compared to. If we were to read it through a twenty twenty two prism, and I know there are limitations and irritations with with that as a tactic. But this is a story of abuse and trauma repeated through generations. And one of the most unpleasant things, but also I reluctantly say that it fascinated me about the way in which Heathcliff abuses people is how he does it to men versus how he does it to women. So the men he degrades, he takes pride in his nephew Hareton becoming a barbarian or an imbecile like he was considered as a child. He'll never be able to emerge from his bathos of coarseness and ignorance, Heathcliff gleefully tells Nellie, which of course reflects back to when Catherine says she cannot marry Heathcliff because it would degrade her. And there's this real emphasis on how being civilised can save you and being uncivilised kind of traps you in a life of misery. And so he ensures that Hareton is as uncivil as possible. So he's miserable, but it's also a very interesting commentary as as it is throughout the book on class and gentrification and how that can separate people from one another. That's That's how Catherine and Heathcliff end up kind of parting ways. And then his tactic for bullying women is to isolate them. And that fits quite neatly into the Gothic tradition in that sense, not to hark back to my A-level too much. But Catherine, Isabella, Cathy, they all spend weeks starving in their room. And Catherine, of course, gets brain fever, which I imagine is the way that they would then describe a mental breakdown. And Heathcliff's own son, Linton, he can't degrade in the same way he does as Hareton because Linton is too fragile, too refined. So instead, he forbids anyone from visiting Linton, who is sickly and lonely. And he speaks volubly about how he can't wait for him to hurry up and die. I think that's a really interesting point about um, isolating women and locking them away in their rooms because... Of course, Mr. Rochester does that uh, in Jane Eyre. And Yellow Wallpaper, Yellow Wallpaper, that short story. Rochester's sort of, a, a, you know, you root for him. You want you, or at the time, at least you were meant to, you want them to end up together. Whereas like you read it now and you're like, oh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Far be it for me to make everything about masculinity. But um, I do think one of the things which has aged worst in the book is the way that it presents what it presents as as positive masculinity, because you, you're definitely meant to think of Heathcliff as this sort of strapping, old-fashioned, wild and sexy man who's, who's lionised for having the courage and strength to beat up Edgar Linton. And, and Ed, Edgar is constantly described as a coward for, you know, not being as, as violent and, and awful as Heathcliff. And also beating up. Isabella, when you watch the film version with Ray Fine, seeing her covered in bruises and barely able to speak, really hammers home. You want to fancy this guy? You want to fancy the wife beater who is, you know, beating up his wife and keeping her locked upstairs? But he has also been treated appallingly his whole life, likely before he was rescued, 
or kidnapped, I'm never sure which, by Mr. Earnshaw. And certainly once he's instilled in Wuthering Heights and he's laughed at and left out and shut in the cellar. Um, and that also really comes across evocatively, I think, in the in the film when you see the way Hindley treats Heathcliff. And there's clearly some racism towards him. Heathcliff is variously described as black and dark. And as a child, he tells Nellie that he wishes he had light skin and light hair. Yeah, which would insinuate that he's not white, although on other occasions he's described as, as Spanish or or perhaps American. I think most often he's just referred to as as a as a gypsy in in you know a, a derogatory way. I do think that race element is intentional. I think the other characters are awful to Heathcliff precisely because he's an outsider, and it's that constant abuse which is what what shapes him into the the spiteful man he becomes. One thing I found really interesting about reading this novel in a modern context is that you you've started to have quite a lot of quite old-fashioned puritanical arguments around books and in, in, in specifically enjoying books where the main characters aren't good people. And I think people do tend to judge this book and its merits based on Heathcliff's actions. There's quite a strange parallel between that argument, which is rearing its head now, and the Christian sensibilities of the reviews that you had at the time, which literally said stuff like, read Jane Eyre but burn Wuthering Heights. Uh, and that's because the former has a very clear moral arc and and message, while basically everyone in this book is is morally bankrupt. I don't like Heathcliff, and I still really liked the book. I just can't imagine that a variation of this book would be published now. It's the definition of trauma porn. I wonder what that says about me for enjoying it so much. I do think I enjoyed it. Oh, I don't know. I think I enjoyed it in spite of the malignancy. I enjoyed it for the immersive storytelling and the clarity of her writing, but I'm still kind of disentangling why I loved it when it also disturbed me so much. It feels a bit odd asking this about a book over 170 years old, but what would you have changed, Bobby? Well, I mean, I I would say that trauma porn sells really well nowadays. I, I actually think the what would change if this was published nowadays is that you would have more of an interrogation of, of Heathcliff and not just have him as a, as a sort of, windswept hero uh, which he which he sort of is for a lot of it in terms of what i changed there are two things both of which i imagine you'll agree with one's the weird framing device so it's all told from the point of view of this tenant called lockwood who's this uh he's like this posho who's come up from london and he's very like hmm what a queer sort of fellow you get up here in yorkshire i really felt like he came from the same school of narrators as nick carraway in the great gatsby which is that you just have really intimate things happening between the characters you actually care about and then he's just at the corner of the in the corner of the room and you go like oh nick carraway's here too look it's nick yeah lockwood's really annoying not as annoying as joseph who you could have really lost completely but still annoying joseph sucks and he's written in this way with this yorkshire dialect that's like so overdone that you can't actually understand anything. It. it's just yeah, like loads can't. of apostrophes <laughs> but yeah with Lockwood you've got this like Russian doll of unreliable narrators because he's hearing it all from Nelly and then Nelly alone would probably have been enough as a narrator because she's sort of in that great turn of the screw style tradition of the like governess or the housekeeper who's recounting what's happening in this grand this grand house but then Lockwood just confuses things and it's already really confusing with all of the characters having the same names and, and stuff like that. I actually had to screenshot a family tree that I found online because everyone is either called Catherine Linton or a name beginning with H. I hate to say it, but I did wish the book came with a family tree at the beginning and, and you know, maybe a nice little map. On that episode of In Our Time that I mentioned earlier, there's this brilliant English literature professor who 
whose take on the recycling of names is that it's a device to show how the pattern of trauma and abuse keeps repeating, that they are trapped in this web of trauma. So that's why they all have the same names. That's why the cousins keep marrying each other. They just can't escape the house and it's trauma. It's got, it's so intentional that their their names are the same. The, the, you picture them the same, you know, Hareton is Heathcliff. Edgar looks like, yeah, looks like Linton. Linton looks like Edgar. God, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah, it made me find that less irritating. It made me think, oh, that's clever rather than, oh my God, why can't these people have different names? But that also made me think, thinking about the whole cycle of trauma is that Heathcliff only dies once that pattern is broken, once, quote unquote, the clouds of ignorance and degradation are lifted from Hareton through industry and labour, i.e. Cathy teaches him how to read, and he and her turn from enemies into companions, and they become very kind to each other, and essentially Heathcliff's time is up. He's only been sustained the 18 years since Catherine died by ruining everyone around him and ensuring that they are as miserable as he is. That's their li- his lifeblood. But once he can no longer do that, once his house has become a happy one, doof, he's out. Another thing I would change is that I probably would have less of the younger characters because as as much as they're an interesting device, as I said before, it's a book of two halves and pretty much all the good stuff that you remember happens in the first half. Uh, Something I found really interesting is a lot of adaptations actually cut the second half of the book entirely. They don't have the younger characters. The classic 1939 film with Laurence Olivier does that. Uh, So it just sort of ends when Catherine dies, really. It's a very drastic move and it, it does take away a lot of the satisfaction of, of the story, but you can kind of see why they do it. It, it. it almost falls apart a bit when you're just following Kathy and Linton and Hareton going about their day and then Heathcliff's in the background sort of drinking heavily and moaning. I didn't know that about the 1939 film because I didn't get that far. It, the music is insane. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it's quite the 90s. An insane film. Yeah, it's it's the because obviously it's in black and white and it's kind of an early film and the just the music is yeah very intense. I enjoyed the 90s one with Julia Benoist and Ralph Fiennes. I think it really captures the kind of camp ferocity of their melodramatic love affair. And as I said earlier, it really conveys the horrifying brutality of Heathcliff. But oh my god, the wigs—they are so laughably awful. For a lol, I recommend a book riot piece. Terrible literary wigs I have known and loved, which features both Tom Hardy's Heathcliff wig in the 2009 adaptation and Juliette Binoche's in the 1993 one. I'd actually say that um, Ralph Fiennes could have been chucked in there as well. I will—I'll link to that piece in the show notes. It's annoying as well because Tom Hardy for me is like the perfect Heathcliff. He was so good, but yeah, his his wig really does let him down there's just been so many adaptations of this book the most recent one was a really interesting one um i think it came out in 2011 because it it featured the first black heathcliff played by james howson um who was acting against effie from skins kaya scodelario as catherine and i think that that adds a really interesting element to the story and you know a lot of scholars nowadays do do ask the question was heathcliff always intended to be black i do think tom hardy is the best heathcliff i've seen he's the right mix of anguished and and utterly psychotic have you seen the recent biopic of emily bronte no and i do want to see that it's got that great girl from sex education in it hasn't it yes emma mackie so that book attributes a lot of what happens in wuthering heights to emily bronte's own experiences which i think is 
is uh, taking liberties a bit because we don't know much about her. But it very much casts Emily as the the strange one of the siblings. She's this sort of Wednesday Adams type loner. She's an atheist, uh, and that's all set against this pious, popular Charlotte Bronte, who's sort of her um, her judgmental sister. Oh uh, yeah, I read it described somewhere as one of the great autobiographical novels of our time, which I just don't really agree with. Um, Charlotte famously said of her sister, an interpreter ought always to have stood between Emily and the world. And I thought that was quite tender at first, like she was quite protective of her. But then reading a bit more, to be honest, I think she was more worried about the Bronte brand being knocked by the reviews of Wuthering Heights, that it was, you know, depraved and disgusting. And after Emily died of tuberculosis in 1848, Charlotte wrote an apologia for the second edition of Wuthering Heights, where she wrote that Emily was a native and nursling of the Moors who did not know what she had done by writing the book, which really annoys me, actually. She sort of like de-civilizes her and de-intellectualizes her. Leave her alone. It's interesting you say that about the Bronte brand because they they both wrote under pen names, as a lot of female writers did at the time, and one was Ellis Bell and one was Curra Bell. And a lot of people thought they were the same person. So that might explain why Charlotte was so... Uh, sort defensive. Of defensive, exactly. Um, one thing you'll be pleased to know is that in the Emma Mackey film, Charlotte is not the nicest character. It's not very kind to her. Charlotte was the only Bronte sibling not to die of TB, or consumption as it was known then. And when Emily died, lots of the really bad reviews from the time of Wuthering Heights were found in her desk. So, you know, everyone thinks of the Bronte sisters as this tragic trio, but it is a really deeply sad story. I always think it's really sad when an author dies before their book becomes cult. You know, they die when it's kind of considered weird and edgy and it didn't really work she never knew she never knew kind of the legacy of it i guess that sort of feeds into the into the myth of emily bronte so i have one more question for you um it's the big one have i changed your mind on wuthering heights i stopped fishing like you need me to say it yes go on (laughs) thank you bobby for making me reread it or i'd have never have known otherwise you know what pandora you're welcome I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. On to Orlando by Virginia Woolf, which I have been wanting to read since Alif Shafak wrote beautifully about it for What Writers Read and what it meant to her as a young queer woman growing up in Turkey. And then I doubly wanted to read it as I have tickets tomorrow night for the play starring Emma Corrin, which is getting rave reviews. I've heard such good things about that, so I'm, I'm really jealous that you're going. Orlando is about an aristocratic teenage boy called Orlando, born in the 16th century, who travels across time and gender, hundreds of centuries, multiple continents, turns as a poet, a diplomat, a lover, and later he becomes a woman. 
It starts in 1588 and ends in 1928. It's also famously a love letter to Vita Sackville West, a bisexual author, aristocrat and garden designer who Virginia Woolf had an affair with from 1925 to 1928 and who would often dress as a man and refer to herself as Julian. Orlando is intended to be a witty and parodic biography, skewing the tradition at the time of biographies only being written about men. And what gives it extra source is that it was her own father, an editor who compiled the dictionary of national biography all about men. So it was a bit of a rejoinder from Virginia to him showing that women are worthy of biography too. Can I just say, I am an absolute sucker for books which pretend to be biographies. Uh, I think it's a really clever tool because you sort of know you're being tricked from the outset. I read um, Case Study by Graham McRae Burnett over Christmas. That was longlisted for last year's Booker. That's also a quote-unquote biography, and it's really good. Oh, I'll check that one out. Little bit of background before we jump in. It's impossible to talk about Virginia Woolf and her work without talking about the Bloomsbury Group, a fascinating and glamorous artistic movement that she was part of that included philosophers, artists, intellectuals, such as the economist John Maynard Keynes, the wonderful painter Vanessa Bell, whose beautifully decorated house that she lived in with Duncan Grant, Charleston, you can go and visit. It's much aped in interiors today, actually. Orlando was published by Virginia's own publishing imprint, Hogarth Press, which she set up with her husband, Leonard Wolfe, an intellectual, and they published major people at the time like Sigrid Freud and T.S. Eliot. The Bloomsbury Group were politically liberal, famous for their sexual fluidity and extramarital affairs, and Virginia herself was bisexual. The Bloomsbury Group are just endlessly fascinating. Reading up on them, I, I couldn't believe like how modern they were in their views. Although their aristocratic views uh, also colour their thinking, they're also upper middle class. Put a pin in that comment about that aristocratic thinking. I want to come back to that later. To get onto Orlando myself, my reading of Virginia Woolf is not particularly wide. Like a lot of people, I sort of think I know lots about her just because she's in the kind of cultural ether. But in terms of her books I've read, I studied Mrs. Dalloway at uni. I've read it once since. I liked it. I loved Room of One's Own. I had to give up on To the Lighthouse. So Mrs. Dalloway is legitimately my favourite book of all time. Um, I'm aware I say that about a different book every episode, but this <laughs> this is genuinely my favourite book of all time. I read it at uni and it just sort of blew my mind wide open. Uh, not like Wuthering Heights did as a teenager, like even more so. So I've tried to read as much Virginia Woolf as possible in the years since. I also struggled with To the Lighthouse. I sort of felt like it was too clever for me. Did you finish it? I did finish it, but I think I was wow. maybe skimming <laughs> by the end. I was pretending to know what was going on. Um, I like the years. Read. Yeah, it's a hard read. Uh, I like the years. I loved Jacob's Room, which is one of her earlier books. Oh, haven't read that. So you don't hear a lot about it, but it's almost a proto Mrs. Dalloway. So if you like that one, I'd, I'd really recommend Jacob's Room. But I'd never read Orlando, and I had high hopes for it. Pandora, what did you think? So I really like a lot of the way Virginia Woolf writes. I like her choice of words, her sharp observation, her turns of phrase. One I jotted down because I just love alliteration is when someone is described as fair, florid and a touch phlegmatic. But let's harness the elephant in the room. I found this really difficult to read. Same. Yeah, same. Um, there was definitely more that I didn't enjoy than I did. It was only a matter of time before this was going to happen on Book Chat because someone, that's me, uh, was so bold as to 
recommend a book that they hadn't read yet but that's okay Shame. i think this is part of the journey um i think i think i found it so difficult because it's the sentences although they are often in part beautiful they are so long and they are filled with colons and semicolons and also by its nature it's a very energetic book all about how time is elastic 300 years pass in the same way as three seconds that's sort of the point of her book but it makes it very hard to follow and if i hadn't picked it up for book chat I will be honest, I would have given up 30 pages in. I'm glad I didn't give up because there is plenty to like about the book and there's plenty of pause for thought, but I have absolutely no intention of reading it again. It's funny because it is an energetic book, but it's also very slow. Like I expected it yes. to, you, you read Mrs. Dalloway and it, it zips about and it's it's really, really you know, readable. Whereas with this, it, it felt it like- It covers 400 years and somehow still lags. Yeah, it, when it's, it, it started slow then it got way better and then and then it, it got really slow again. I agree that the best bit's in the middle. It's the 19th century when Orlando becomes a woman because it's the most interesting. She writes about society and Orlando's experience of society as a woman so interestingly. Well, that's what makes the book different, isn't it? It's that that, that famous gender swap which happens in the middle and, and that's, the, that's the experimental thing. But, you know, on either side of that, it's... It's a weird, it's sort of mired in comedy that's very specifically about the the old literary world and literature of the time and poetry. And it just, I just felt like it was totally impermeable to to me. I would say as a modern reader, I know other modern readers like it, but you know, I just, I, I didn't really get it. I, I think she could have lost a lot of the Alexander Pope chat for one. But that said, you know, when this book was good, it, it, it was really good. I agree with that. And the poet Green, you know who yeah, she Nick was? Yeah, Nick Green. Who's also immortal? She was a competitor with Nick Green when she started writing The Oak Tree. Oh my God, that poem, The Oak Tree. And then he ends up publishing it. Yeah, I got really confused with all the poet stuff. Shakespeare pops up in a tavern at some point. I also can't keep up with her lovers, even though they have excellent names. Rosita Pepita, there's Archduke Harry, Sasha the Russian princess, who constantly seems to be in her imagination riding over the waves in a boat. Um... Although I do quite like how completely destabilised Orlando becomes and kind of the traversing of all these different narratives and genres that she can't really tell if Sasha is actually on a boat drowning or in her mind drowning. There were loads of things I liked, but often in concept rather than execution. I really liked that Virginia Woolf ran with this idea of the multiplicity of selves, which is quite political for that time women weren't expected to be much at all outside of the domestic um which is something that's like massively important in her work orlando isn't just a couple of selves she's literally hundreds of selves there's a bit that i'm just going to read for she had a great variety of selves to call upon far more than we've been able to find room for since a biography is considered complete if it merely accounts for six or seven selves whereas a person may well have as many thousand choosing them, only those selves we have found room for. And I think part of what makes it probably quite hard to read is that Orlando uh, does have these thousands of selves. But I also really like how Virginia Woolf explores gender. She writes, Orlando had become a woman. There is no denying it. But in every other respect, Orlando remained precisely as he had been. The change of sex, though it altered their future, did nothing whatsoever to alter their identity. And Orlando's change in gender is without any trauma. It's narrated really simply. Um, Orlando simply goes to sleep for seven days and wakes up as a woman. 
Um, and this was very new, obviously, for Victorian society, but it wasn't a brand new idea for the Bloomsbury group. They were influenced by Edward Carpenter's 1908 book, The Intermediate Sex, which posited that there were people who were neither man nor woman, but earnings. Um, Orlando's not described as an earning. He's wholly a man and then wholly a woman. But Virginia was certainly an advocate for progressive ideas about gender and sexuality. Both her and Vita advocated noisily for Radcliffe Hall's 1928 book, The Well of Loneliness, which was about a lesbian couple and was banned for a good 20 years. Um, weirdly, I don't think Orlando was banned. No, and I think, I, I mean, I guess because it's, it's presented as a comedy and it's not in the present day. I think that's the whole thing that 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 Wolf uh, that, that Virginia Woolf was saying about it being a biography is almost she couldn't write a biography about a woman, but by creating this sort of ludicrous comedy, she could write what she wanted. I actually expected Orlando to be a more fluid, androgynous character, just because that was, I think, my understanding of of what the novel was. I didn't realize it was about someone who is a man for the first half of the for the first half of the book. And then a woman for the second half of the book. But that actually seems to be a reflection of how Vita Sackville-West saw her own gender, half one and half the other. It's really amazing to think that this came out in the same year as the act which meant men and women were finally able to vote on equal terms over the age of 21. Like That's where gender was at at the time, which is a sign of just how radical the ideas in Orlando were. That reading, that that bit you just read out, uses non-gendered language. You know, A book from 100 years ago using they, them pronouns, it's amazing. There are so many arguments still going on right now about whether you can leave behind the gender of your birth. And here you have Virginia Woolf 100 years ago already saying, yeah, yeah, you can easily. That's a really good spot about that being the year that both men and women were finally able to vote. My favourite part of the book is when Orlando is a woman in the 19th century, as I said, because of how much Virginia Woolf observes she is affected by the mores of the epoch. Firstly... Orlando can no longer inherit her lands and titles and she observes that she may as well be dead because being a woman amounts to the same thing at that time. And secondly, in this century, she finds herself susceptible to peer pressure and she gets married, which again isn't something she felt any need to do as a man. And she observes that she has no idea why she feels the need to do this, that she never felt that before. And, you know, Orlando was this free-spirited flaneur in Constantinople. And then the next century, as a woman, Orlando's yearning, even whilst knowing it's against her better judgment, for a mate because she cannot resist the persuasions of a patriarchal society. And that is my favorite thing about Virginia Woolf and her writing, is how women are seen in relation to men she writes about it with such knowingness, such slyness. Um, you want to kind of examine it from all these angles. I mean, there's this great quote in A Room of One's Own where she says, women had served all these centuries as looking glasses, possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of man at twice its natural size. That's so good. Um, you you told me to come back to my comment about the Bloomsbury group and aristocracy and that there is one really perfect example. So there's this idea that Orlando, uh, when she becomes a woman, finds acceptance with a gypsy clan out in Europe. Uh, but then there's this comedy that she leaves them behind because she basically misses the creature comforts of her peerage and her massive country house. That is is a very thinly veiled dig at, at Vita, who was very proud of her Romany heritage. She fantasised about joining a gypsy caravan. But she was also an out and proud member of the English aristocracy and she was very tied to money, essentially. She had this huge, huge country house, Knoll Park in, in Kent and then she moved to Sissinghurst. You know, you can visit her 
her her houses as, as national trust properties now the whole book is entrenched in that kind of upper middle class humor it's full of literary figures like you're saying but I think one of the biggest influences is is someone who doesn't feature as a character and someone we have already mentioned today, Lord Byron. You're very into Byron today. Are you reading a biography of him or something? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm being paid by the Byron Foundation. Uh, no, the, the, so the male Orlando is is very clearly Byron. He's this white English aristocrat who wears flowish, flowing Turkish robes and hops between uh, lovers. It, it read to me a lot like Byron's Don Juan. Uh, and before anyone corrects me on that pronunciation, that is how the Byron version is, is it? apparently produced. Yeah, it's not I did Don think, Juan. oh my god, how embarrassing for him! I, <laughs> I could feel, I could feel you like waiting to pounce and correct me. Don Juan allegedly is is the Byron version's pronunciation, uh, but that's also about a young, adventurous nobleman gallivanting across Europe and and playing around with gender roles. Um, and it's funny because I think both of the books we're discussing today read a little bit like Byron fanfic. So you've got like the Orlando version of Byron, which is the roving adventurer. And then you've got Heathcliff, who's, who's you know, so often compared to Byron, probably was in some part based on him, classic, dark, brooding, child, child Harold's pilgrimage version. The famous quote of... Byron's lover being that he was mad, bad, and dangerous to know, which I think like several variations of that are used to describe Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. Both of those Byrons are sort of fictional versions of Byron invented by himself. And I think it's interesting that him as a character uh, permeates through so much literature across the ages. These books are a hundred years apart and, you know, Byron essentially pops up in both of them. The reviews at the time were mixed. Even Virginia couldn't quite decide what she thought about it. She described writing it as a writer's holiday, but then she later dismissed it as too long for a joke and too frivolous for a serious book. The Times literary supplement, who Virginia herself wrote for, and I think her father once edited. So there's definitely, to go back to your point earlier, an element of all these people running the show and writing it. Never has Miss Wolf written with more verve or more boldly. And I do agree, it's got verve. It's got verve, yeah. It's it's fast-paced, it's fun, but I agree with Virginia. I think I think my main disappointment was that for all the boldness of the of the idea, and it is such a bold idea for the time, the book itself didn't feel like it had had the depth to match it. It, it. it wasn't as experimental as I as I think I wanted it to be, and I think that's because I love her other work so much, and it is so experimental. I felt like reading this, I was reading something older and and maybe stuffier than I'd expected. How I mean, it, you know, I I think it it, it reads like a book a hundred years older than it is. How do you think it's aged? I don't think it reads like a book 100 years older, um, I, but I do think it's written in a very convoluted way. But to be honest, having tried to read To the Lighthouse, I I wonder if Mrs. Dalloway is the exception. Although you've, you've read more than me, and if you don't feel like this is something she always does with her writing. She's she's a writer's writer, you know. She, she, she writes, she has a very writery way of writing, which can sometimes be a bit uh, headache-inducing. There are some terms naturally which make you wince, product of her time, etc., etc. The opener is really jarring when Orlando is bashing the decapitated head of an African man brought home as spoils of war by his father or grandfather. The way it's described is really unpleasant. And when I started reading the book, I thought, oh my God, this is going to be a really violent book. Um, 
it's actually just a really jarring start. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's, it's, it is really out of place. And, you know, it, it, it's easy to go like, oh, maybe that's just what like books of the time did. But, you know, I've read a lot of other books of the time which don't start like that. I do think for all her progressiveness, Virginia Woolf had some really questionable views. There, there was a, a great article I read recently by um, Stephen Unwin in the Byline Times. There's something called the Byline Times? Yeah, the Byline Times. Oh, check it out. This article was very cleverly called Who's Virginia Woolf Afraid Of? Uh, and it was about her really, really grotesque views on disabled people. We will put that in the show notes. Aside from the obvious stuff, though, what would you have changed about Orlando if you were Virginia's editor? The way it's written? <laughs> I'm going to upset people by saying that. I still think she's a legend and I love it in concept. Just the execution was just really, really not my bag. Um, although, as I've said, not as hard as to the lighthouse. Basically, I didn't anticipate finding it a slog. I mean, this is why this episode has been so surprising to me. I thought Wuthering Heights would be my slog and Orlando would be my sweet relief. Um, and that's just absolutely not the case. But I guess I've now read four things by Virginia Woolf. I love two. I found two impenetrable. That puts me somewhere in the middle i guess i'm going to read that one that you said you loved jacob's room it's really short as well so perfect yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that made it sound like i was judging you as a person but no it's no uh, no no i appreciate that i think i think books are just too long these days <laughs> i agree it is an interesting question isn't it is is this classic virginia wolf i don't really know what i think about that i haven't read enough of her work i think to say so i would say it shares common themes with what i have read of modernity female identity the collapsing of time creative work yeah, I think maybe it's maybe it's thematically it's classic Virginia Woolf, but then in its execution, in its writing style, it's it's way, way, way different to to Mrs. Dalloway or to The Lighthouse or any of those other like really modernist books for which she's she's most famous. Will you be reading more Virginia Woolf? I would like to read all the Virginia Woolf. I've I've heard The Waves is apparently her most her most experimental book, so I'm gonna take that as a as a challenge and read that next. Oh my God, let me know how that is. <laughs> Wish me luck. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to Book Chat. You can email us at bookchatpod at gmail.com. Otherwise, we will be back in your ears on the 1st of March. Next month, we are taking it back to the present day, or at least the present century. Our books for March's episode are All That Man Is by David Saloy and The Reluctant Fundamentalist by Mosin Hamid. Book Chat is hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer with sound by Joel Grove and production by Pandora Sykes. We'll see you in March. Bye-bye. <laughs>